Well, hello and welcome to the Downtown Council podcast, brought to you by the Downtown Council of the Jacksonville Chamber of Commerce. Today on the podcast, we're talking with Mari Kuriyashi and Mark Walker. Mari is the president of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, and Mark is the director of the Jesse, and he's a senior programs officer. They're talking to us about all the exciting work that they're doing in downtown Jacksonville. This meeting was recorded June 4th as part of a virtual downtown council meeting. Um, we're gonna start with Mari. Um, Mari's the president of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. Um, and she is the one that's leading the efforts to create the communities of belonging for the places and the institution that the Jesse knew and that that, that Jesse uh, Ball DuPont knew and loved um, by fostering inclusive growth and reducing structural and systemic barriers to resources and opportunities. I love that. I could read that line over and over and over and over again. It's such a great long line. Um, prior to joining the fund, Mari co-founded the groundbreaking crowdfunding philanthropic uh, site Global Giving. Um, and served as president until 2018. So she definitely has um, uh, an area of expertise that you know not a lot of people have. She's come in from from the ground up, um, and that's that's huge. And if anyone knows anything about a crowd a crowdfunding um, organization, it is definitely not for the lighthearted. So that is a huge accomplishment. Um, in 2011. She was named one of the foreign policy's top 100 global thinkers for crowdsourcing world saving. Um, and prior to that, she worked at the World Bank, uh, where she created and managed some of the bank's most innovative loans and programs, uh, including founding its innovative engine, the development marketplace. Uh, she currently serves on the boards for Global Giving, Data Kind, and the Cummer Museum. Yay, we just have the Cummer. We love the Cummer. Um, as well as the advisory boards for the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard. Um, the U.S. Japan Council and LISC, Jacksonville. Um, I don't know if, to me, this is really amazing, but uh, Mari speaks Japanese, but she also speaks Russian, Italian, and French, and English, clearly. I think it's really, um, it, it shows a lot to have such cultural diversity, um, especially in a program um, such as like what the Jesse's running. So Mari, I fangirl over you. You have no idea. So does Gracie, just so you know. <laughs> um, and then let's talk about Mark. So um, I have the privilege of knowing Mark in real life, not just through uh, his works. And he is definitely one that's boots on the ground. So um, Mark, I clearly fangirl over you as well. But for those of you who don't Mark, know Mark, he serves as the director of the Jesse, um, and he oversees the administrative and operations of the uh, center itself which is owned and operated by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. Um, the Jesse is, for those of you, it's the old Hayden Burns Library. Um, it is, it's an iconic structural piece in downtown Jacksonville and definitely a spot that um, if you haven't been there in a while, you need to trek downtown because there's a lot of amazing, amazing art and cultural diver diversity um, that's kind of all around that area. Like it's, it's a huge spot and I'll let them talk about it, but I want to take away from them. Um, um, Mark um, is in charge of strategic planning, tenant acquisition, retention, and relationship management, as well as the events, which they held an Art Republic event there recently, um, and it, it went amazingly. Um, he is um, uh, the, he's the senior program director for the 40 grantees located in the Northern Neck and Middle Peninsula. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. He's also the senior program director for the 40 grantees located in the Northern Neck and Middle Peninsula of Virginia, Jesse Ball DuPont's home region, as well as for the funds energy conservation grants to liberal arts higher education institutions. Prior to being with the, with the Jesse, he served as knowledge management and technology officer for the fund, implementing hardware and software business solutions. Um, so he's definitely been a part of the Jesse um, to know it very intimately inside and out. Um, and before that, he came from the Community Foundation in Jacksonville. He was their director of research and technology. 
um, and the manager of research and technology for the Chartran Foundation. So also Mark has a lot of really amazing philanthropic um, like history within himself um, and, his, and all that he does. So clearly his heart's in it, which is great for us in Jacksonville. Um, he volunteers his time assisting local nonprofits as part of the Nonprofit Center of Northeast Florida's Community Coaches Program. And he's currently a board member of the Technology Affinity Group for Foundations, a nonprofit membership organization that promotes the power of technology to advance the goals of philanthropic sector. All right, you guys, I'm so excited to have both you, Mark and Mari. As you guys know, I love, love, love a council meeting whenever we have multiple speakers because they feed off each other and they give us so much insight. And I know that this morning, Mari and Mark both have a lot to tell and a lot to share, and we're really looking forward to it. Just so you guys, for those of you who haven't been on council in a while, if you have questions, throw them in the chat box on the right side of your screen. Um, once Mari and Mark are through their, um, their presentation, we will all field some questions and get as many answers as we can. I feel like this is one of those mornings where we might run out of time. So you guys know we have a hard stop at nine before we go into breakouts. Um, so if we don't get to everyone's questions, Mark and Mari, I'll send them to you and we can get them answered and back out. With that, good morning, Mark and Mari. Good morning. Thank you for that uh, very lovely introduction, Laura and Gracie. Uh, really happy to be talking to you and thank you for showing up. It's early. Um, I am going to share screen. So you should now see some slides. Good, all right. Um, as uh, Laura mentioned, I came to the uh, fund um, fairly recently, about two and a half years ago from Washington, D.C., where I was running a global uh, crowdfunding platform. But I have had a chance to sort of get my feet on the ground here, and I love the work that the Jesse Paul DuPont Fund does, so I'm excited to show it to you. Um, just Briefly, I'll let you know what I'm going to cover. I'm going to cover a little bit of, you know, why we exist, why we do what we do. Uh, I'm going to talk about our work in La Villa. I'm also going to work, talk about our work on the waterfront, our work in healthcare, and uh, our work in impact investing. And Mark is going to take you through the Jesse. This is by no means all of what we do, but the things that we thought might be of interest to the council. So happy to answer any questions that are not on this agenda. So as Laura mentioned, here's our mission. And why do we care about the communities that Jesse knew and loved? Well, partly it's the will. We are a product of Jesse's will. And she said, I'd like my money to serve those communities. Simple. But at, you know, sort of digging a little further, Jesse Baldupont was a um, was the daughter of one of the sort of bluest families in, in this country. The ball in Jesse Ball DuPont is the same ball as in Mary Ball Washington, George Washington's mother. So we're talking about George Washington's mother's family. The Ball family was in Virginia for an extremely long time. And um, she was, by the time she married um, Alfred I. DuPont, of obviously the DuPont family, she was a school teacher and had been a school teacher for a long time. At that time, she was, I think, the vice principal of a high school in, out in San Diego, California. And she was supporting her parents and some of her siblings 
through her earnings as a vice principal, but she had already started committing to the path of uh, philanthropy. She, she thought education was the pathway to social and economic mobility. She funded lots of uh, students to go to college and that sort of was the, the gateway drug for her to get into philanthropy. So we have a, as some of you may know, a specific list of grantees that Jessie used to give to in her lifetime. There are about 300 plus of them, but we also, per the terms of the will, serve the communities in Virginia, Delaware, and Florida, where we may provide temporary relief for people in need. So those are two different ways in which we do grant making, but really we seek to make those places that Jesse knew and loved as inclusive and prosperous as possible. We have an idea that when everyone in the community feels included and feels like they belong, they bring their whole selves to the table. And when people bring their whole selves to the table, that is when magic happens. That is when creativity happens. That was when entrepreneurial ideas are born. It's when they sort of give everything to what they're doing. And you know, some of the problems we face in our, our world, our communities are so gnarly that you can't solve them unless you bring everything to the table. So we are trying to create the preconditions for each of these communities to prosper. So that translates for us into creating spaces where people come together in as inclusive and equitable way as possible. So that translates in the sort of philanthropic jargon into what we call placemaking and equity. And I'm gonna talk about a couple of examples of that. Many of you are probably familiar uh, and or might seen, have seen some beautiful pictures in the paper or TV around um, our work together with the city on Lift Every Voice and Sing Park. This is located in the historic neighborhood of La Villa. I'm going to start flipping through some renderings here, created by Walter Hood, who is one of the premier urban landscape designers in the U.S., a MacArthur Genius Grant awardee, just an amazing person who came to Jacksonville. He was born in Charlotte, North Carolina, practices out of California now, but he's, you know, he's familiar with the Southeast. And he came to our, uh, our city looked at La Villa and he knows the history, he, he had done his homework, so he knew the history of La Villa, but he was, you know, struck by what little was left of it. And so some of the things that he's trying to do in this neighborhood is to recreate some of the built environment as testament to what an amazing place La Villa used to be. Um, you know, I, I'm new to Jacksonville, so I was just, you know, flabbergasted to learn that, you know, in its time, La Villa was the Harlem of the South. And, you know, realistically, it should have been called, you know, Harlem should be known as the Jacksonville of the North because we, from Jacksonville, contributed some of the, you know, the outstanding talent that make up, the, that make up what we know today as a Harlem Renaissance. And it's not restricted to just the Johnson brothers, which is who are celebrated here in this beautiful park. 
um, but also Zora Neale Hurston, novelist, A. Philip Randolph, uh, civic leader, uh, Augusta Savage, the uh, sculptress, and many more. And they went up to Harlem because the train ended here. For a long time, Jacksonville was the southernmost terminus of the Eastern Railroad. So some people showed up in Jacksonville by intention. Some people showed up because they got to the end of the line and they spilled out and ended up in La Villa. And La Villa was a neighborhood that you lived in if you were neither white nor Protestant. So Jewish people, the Chinese laborers who worked on the railroad, obviously the African-American uh, people. And the African-American people lived there because in the Civil War, the Union Army had set up in La Villa at Fort uh, Hatch. They went from Fort Hatch over to the Battle of Alusti out west. And when the Civil War was over and African-Americans were freed, they came back to La Villa because that was where they had been bivouacked. And that's how you get the start of La Villa. So Walter, just to get back to the park, wanted to celebrate that history. And what better way to do it than starting with Lift Every Voice and Sing. Um, here's the Emerald Trail uh, over on the right-hand side of the park. You will see here this lawn. I'm gonna show you some more pictures. It's lifted in homage to the song, Lift Every Voice and Sing. There is, here's the Emerald Trail again. There's a little uh, statue of James and Rosamond at the um, uh, garden and at the piano. Uh, here is a shotgun house that has been converted into a stage. If you know La Villa, you know DIA owns those three shotgun houses. They're, one of them is gonna be rehabilitated and turned into a stage. Here's what it looks like from the uh, uh, lifted lawn. Little splash pad because summers are warm in Jacksonville and a poet's walk between the um, residential development that's going to be happening on the east side of the park. And here's a poet's walk from the other side. Now the subsequent pictures are pictures that uh, some of you may not have seen. In fact, mo most of you may not have seen with the exception possibly of Wanda. Um, but the Walter came to design Lift Every Voice and Sing, but he also came and said, you know what, you can't just have this park in the middle of nowhere. We got to activate the whole neighborhood. Here are some ideas. I mean, this is sort of over and above what we contracted for. And, you know, just to show you how much he was taken by Jacksonville, Walter donated $10,000 from one of his fellowships to the construction of this park. So he, he's got skin in the game. Um, one of his ideas concerns the Ritz Theater. If you know, there's a little park in front of the Ritz Theater. Right now it's cut off from the park with these concrete planters that frankly look like anti-terrorist devices. Walter says, what do you need those planters for? Take them down, create an open space, recreate Augusta Savage's uh, statue called the harp. Um, it was inspired by Lift Every Voice and Sing. Augusta Savage was a renowned sculptress. There was an amazing exhibit at the Comer about Augusta Savage. And if you went to that exhibit, you probably will know that the harp was created for the World's Fair, but it was done in plaster. She did not have enough money to cast the statue in a more permanent um, way like bronze. 
And at the end of the World's Fair, that plaster cast was raised because they weren't going to bring it back, try and bring it back somewhere else. It's too impermanent. So we would like to recreate it and put it out in front of the Ritz. Just a little bit of a, you can see how this creates a sort of an outdoor space for the Ritz. Another thing that Walter left us with is the colored waiting room. Now you all are familiar with the convention center, uh, old Union Station. The northernmost room of Union Station, this pink square was a colored waiting room. And you see here in this incredible picture here, this black and white picture, everyone dressed up in their, uh, you know, sort of best traveling clothes. This is back when people dressed up to travel, waiting in the waiting room to take the train north. So in homage to that colored waiting room, he suggested, Walter suggested, creating, recreating one of those benches, you know, that you see in every Eastern uh, railroad uh, station, Philly, New York, Washington, DC, these wooden benches. Create a concrete version of that bench and put a timeline in front of it to show all the people who came and went and lived in La Villa. Uh, this would be, of course, a community project to figure out who we want to com commemorate because we can't put everybody on there. But it would be a terrific way to sort of begin memorializing what an amazing engine that railroad station was for the creativity and vibrancy of La Villa. As you know, it's right across the street from JTA. And uh, we've been talking to JTA about sort of integrating it with the art that is in JTA. They've done such a terrific job and maybe doing a vinyl wrap or digital projections on that part of Union Station. Uh, moving on from the colored waiting room, we are going to look at some additional activation ideas. Uh, some of you may know that Ward Street, now known as Houston Street, is uh, well was the red light district of Jacksonville um, famously shut down in World War II because the Navy was um, not happy with what the sailors were getting up to on Ward Street and uh, but because it was the red light district um, I sort of interesting fact is that it had the highest concentration of women business and property owners in all of Jacksonville. Some of you may know that um, the author of um, The Red Badge of Courage, Stephen Crane, and his wife, Cora, I think, uh, lived in Jacksonville for a time. When they lived in Jacksonville, Cora owned a brothel on Ward Street. A little known fact. So an idea is to commemorate the women of La Villa, the business women, the artists, the you know, people who came and worked in the cigar factories um, and create a little pop-up art installation so that people can learn about the women of La Villa. This, uh, you'll, most of you will recognize this beautiful mural at the back. There's an empty lot there where we could do a pop-up uh, art exhibit just to begin to activate the space. Um, another idea is to start putting up art frames on Davis Street, uh, that's Brewster Hospital, um, the first uh, African-American hospital in Jacksonville. 
uh, now the um, headquarters of the Florida Land Trust. And on Davis Street, you'll see, of course, La Villa, the School of the Arts, where my son goes to school, and at the far end, the Ritz Theater. So just to create a little bit of visual interest and excitement around uh, Davis Street. And so that is our work in La Villa. And we are engaged in it both with funds. We are putting a million, $1.1 million into the creation of the park and other activation activities. We are also actively fundraising for it with the city. So we are creating a public-private partnership to really make sure that not only these beautiful places are built, but that they are maintained and that they are programmed so that people have a reason to show up. That's La Villa. And that's sort of equity and placemaking in just one uh, place. Next, uh, I want to talk a little bit about our engagement in Lift Jacks. You've heard, I think, from Darnell Smith in one of your other meetings. Um, but uh, we are one of the uh, funders for Lift Jacks. We think it's an amazing partnership where funders are coming together, nonprofits are coming together, businesses are coming together. We are all focusing on one neighborhood, on the principles of um, purpose-built communities. And I just think that this type of approach, where we're all agreed on how we're going to work and what we're going to try to do and just see if we can move the needle. And it's, it's an amazing, it's in a neighborhood that is got incredible history. A. Philip Randolph was, uh, grew up there and others, but it's a community that has not had the, the support it needs to prosper. So Lift Jacks is one of those um, signature uh, activities that we are very proud to be associated with. Another thing you may have seen us gotten, getting act, uh, involved in is in uh, activating the waterfront. You've probably seen a lot, including yesterday, from all these plans around the waterfront. We, our particular engagement is to work in concert with stakeholders and the public uh, sector um, to um, work uh, and figure out what people want to do on this amazing stretch of river from Memorial Park to Metropolitan Park on the North Bank and encompassing the uh, Baptist Health and the district on the South Bank. Our idea is that form follows function and we want to make sure that we have gotten the broadest possible definition of function. What do people want to do at the river? Whether it is walk, bike, hang out, fish, eat, drink, we want to gather all of these ideas and play this little game of Tetris to figure out how many of those things can be fit on the river because there's only so many, you know, so many feet of um, riverfront. Can we make sure that we fit as many of those things onto the river? So we're engaged and working to working with groundwork um, and uh, the coalition members of Riverfront Parks now to try and figure out what do people want to do and how can we advise the city on how all of those things can fit. 
we are not designing specific sites. You know, there's an RFP out for the landing slash riverfront plaza. There will be an RFP out for, you know, the Brooklyn Plaza. There's all sorts of things that will specifically engineer and design. Um, we are working with the city to uh, advise them on what could be done with the public part of shipyards. Um, but we are not in the business of sort of designing specific sites. So that's uh, riverfront work. The next thing is Jack's Care Connect. And, and I want to talk about this a little bit because it's a unique way in which the free care clinics in Duval County for the uninsured residents have been, you know, sort of working on their own, but recently come back together. And when they came back together, I mean, this, this sounds really sort of common sense, but this is not that common. So for all of these organizations to be working in concert together with funding partners like us, to try to create the most comprehensive safety net that we can create for the uninsured. Um, that is, you know, really innovative. And we wanted to make sure that we sort of rewarded people for coming together. And we are excited to see what can happen when people work together in concert rather than separately. Um, Next, I'm going to talk briefly about our impact investing. Now, what does it mean to do impact investing? We have an endowment of uh, $360 million or so. That endowment is designed to throw off enough income and gains for us to fund the administrative costs of running the fund, as well as all the grants that I just I was talking about. The IRS requires that we spend 5%. Some years we spend a lot more, as in when we acquired the Jesse and it made all those investments. So it comes and goes, but at a minimum, 5% is what we spend. But the $360 million, you know, invested in standard issue public uh, equity, invested in bonds, invested in private equity invested a little bit in, you know, sort of venture capital. Some of that work, some of those assets, we are trying to make sure are actually also serving the social good. So about a third of our, that $360 million is invested in what are called ESG uh, options, as well as direct investments in some um, investments like, um, Center Creek, it's a housing developer that focuses on moderate income housing in the Southeast. We have invested in uh, Sustain VC, a, v, uh, a venture capital firm focused on environmentally and socially sustainable enterprises. In addition, we make what are called, this gets jargony, they're called program related investments, but it, think of it really as low interest loans that we can issue. One of these uh, loans that we made was for um, changing homelessness. Many of you know there was a homelessness crisis in the middle of the pandemic, just north of Beaver Street, you know, on the corner of Beaver and Jefferson, where uh, an, an entire encampment had set up. Um, 
the city had actually pulled together not just its own funds, but federal and state funds to take care of all those homeless people by housing them if necessary in hotel rooms. So there were funds ready to put these people up in hotel rooms. Changing homelessness was in charge of that program. Now you saw the number of people who were there. The number of hotel rooms that had to be booked to take care of those people was in the six figures. The way changing homelessness had to do that was by putting it on their Amex card because the hotels wanted a credit card to ensure that these bills would be paid. So their credit card was totally maxed out. They couldn't spend it on anything else. You know, they needed paper. They couldn't spend because their Amex card was maxed out. We made a $500,000 loan to changing homelessness so that they could free up their credit card, have enough working capital to just keep you know, those hotel rooms booked while waiting for the federal or state funds that they were getting on a reimbursement basis. That's the kind of thing we can do with our capital that has nothing to do with our grant making. We also participate in a nationwide uh, guarantee pool to make sure that CDFIs make uh, uh, loans to businesses and the guarantee pool makes it a little bit less risky for those CDFIs to make those uh, business loans. So that's our work on impact investing. But really, you know, the Jesse is one of our biggest impact investments. We, um, you know, my predecessor Sherry had this incredible insight that by buying the Hayden Burns Library and putting our stake in the ground downtown for and creating beautiful office space for nonprofits, she could play a role in revitalizing that downtown. So I'm going to turn it over now to um, Mark to talk about the Jesse. Thanks, Mari. <clears throat> so thank you, everybody, for being here today. Um, most of you have seen the Jesse. I hope most of you have had the chance to come through. If you haven't, or if you're interested, um, I'm making an offer now just so I don't forget. Um, if you want to, you know, work together and schedule a tour, including all this wonderful new public art and the gallery, um, we'd be happy to do that for you all. Just, you know, let us know. We'll schedule a time and we'll, we'll get that done. So first and foremost, as a um, employee of the fund and the director of the Jesse, my number one goal is to align this asset with our mission and make sure that we do the most good along the line of our mission. So equitable placemaking um, and nonprofit capacity building are, are really the focus areas there at, at the Jesse. Of course, equitable placemaking we'll get into in the next slides, as well as nonprofit capacity building. Um, but you know, those are those are our primary focus areas here. And so what are some of the things that we've been doing during the last year? Um, first, uh, Mari, you just had switched to, um, we ran a COVID-19 pop-up food pantry in partnership with Farm Share and Catholic Charities. Um, we served um, over 10,000 unique families between the months of uh, June and um, basically the week before Thanksgiving. Um, two days a week from essentially 
well, the first the first five weeks we aligned with the city's um, own giving for COVID, where they were um, they were giving out checks to folks that you know signed up, and so the idea was they could come over and get some food as well. And so five days a week we were open until we ran out. We could serve three hundred families a day, um, and then after that money ran out, we stayed open two days a week and we could serve up to 400 families a day, uh, those two days a week. And in addition, we ended up getting a grant from Uber where we could serve an additional 120 a week out of the Jesse um, where Uber drivers would come and bring that food to people that were homebound that couldn't um, you know, get to the Jesse but, but needed food. So this was an incredible partnership. We are thinking, um, together with our partners that include Catholic Charities on ways that we could activate the Jesse to at least monthly to be sort of a full service location for things like a food pantry, things like um, a mobile health clinic from St. Vincent Baptist or Soulsbacher, um, a place where people could come and, and make the initial meet with places like Jala, places where, a place where people could pick up clothes for interviews, um, sign up for other services that they might need. So kind of a full service um, so one-stop that we could do one day a month, but we're in the planning stages for that right now. So the next thing that you may have seen um, was something that we did in partnership with Art Republic last year. Um, so this was actually a fascinating fact that came to me afterwards. One, I knew that we wanted to do this, right? We wanted to create a space outside of our building that made a public statement that you're welcome. Everyone belongs here. This, as many of you know, if you know the history of this building, it's always been a public space. Uh, it was a city hall before it was a library, and now it's a nonprofit center. So we want to keep that idea alive. We don't want it to just be uh, an office building. We want it to be an asset to all of the community. And so art is an important part of that. I see art as multiple things, but one of the most important things is it does is it breaks down the barriers for how you engage around certain issues. So if if you're talking about difficult topics and you're just doing uh, a panel, the, the folks that agree with your panel will show up and no one else will be there. But if you do an art exhibit around a difficult topic, you may bring more people in and be able to lower guard enough that people will start to engage in the conversation and then maybe you can bring, bring them along. But um, for me, equitable representation mattered uh, many of you know Earl Johnson, who's leading Take Them Down Jacks, as well as a Take Them Down movement across the country with monuments. Um, taking things down that divide people is one thing, but there's not enough art in the public space that's representative of everyone's story. And so that was our goal here. How do we take this public space that we have and make it where we can represent the most perspectives um, of stories and in Jacksonville that aren't your traditional stories. Lift up um, communities of color, lift up women um, and, and folks that are traditionally left out. The interesting fact that we learned along this pathway was that in all of Jacksonville, remember that's 864 square miles, it's huge. 
in permanent public art, there were only two pieces that represented minorities and both are statues of African-American sports stars. So the mosaics in particular are considered permanent public art um, versus things like, um, you know, the vinyl that we did and, and, the, and the murals because they can be painted over or taken down. But we've more than quadrupled representation and um, amongst cultural, civil rights, educational and philanthropic leaders locally here. Um, a couple of other interesting facts uh, in case you don't make the tour that you, you know, we're putting up the plaques now, but these kind of things wouldn't be in the plaques, but they're pretty interesting facts about, about um, the art and, the, and how much attention to detail we, we paid to it. So if you, if you look, it's, there's two women in the, in the um, round bays on each end and two men in the middle. And that was very intentional. The idea was that, um, women are ex exceptionally underrepresented in public art, but also women hold, hold men up as they're doing these things. There's always strong, powerful women behind these great men that we don't always acknowledge. So it was a very particular um, reason that we kind of set up that flow on that history walk there. And a second interesting fact um, on the corner of Ocean and Forsyth um, is where Eartha M.M. White sits. And most people don't know that the, where the West Bay garage is that the city owns was a um, slave market. Um, and that was where um, Bertha's um, great grandparents were sold um, um, into slavery. So now Eartha looks out onto that space, um, you know, as a woman that persevered and came, came against came up against so many things to be, you know, one of the greatest Jacksonville philanthropists and leaders. Uh, the parking garage is the West Bay. It's at, um, it's between Forsyth and Bay Street on Ocean. So, um, so that's a little bit about our Art Republic partnership. Jessica was incredible. The artists were incredible. Um, you'll, if you come by, you may notice that the fins are down right now. There was some problems with installation. We're working with another incredible local vendor who you may know, Steve Williams and Harbinger Signs, to rectify that issue and actually make them so that we can switch those out on a regular basis. So although they're down right now, they will be back soon. We're just working on the plan for that. So before end of year is my plan. So um, stay tuned, but they will be back. And one of our newest uh, additions to the Jesse is a partnership with Jacksonville Cultural Development Corporation and uh, Shawana Brooks, their new um, ED, um, known as the Corner Gallery. And this is a really interesting and fun project. We launched it as a pilot, um, and this is still in the pilot stage, but we've now fully funded it over the next year, and it's focused on artist residencies. So essentially, there'll be four separate residencies and they're six months long. Um, the first three months, the artist works around a specific community issue. So let's use an example like um, environmental inequities in certain zip codes and neighborhoods. So they'll work with nonprofits uh, that are dealing with that issue locally, residents, they'll, for the first three months, they'll be learning about those issues in depth and then they'll create um, artwork in response to that. 
And for the next three months, that art will be inside the corner gallery. So every three months, that exhibit will change with a new artist. All the artists are gonna be um, um, black indigenous people, color artists, um, telling local story, all local, all telling um, stories about local issues. And then during that three months that that is up, there'll be associated programming from panels to performances, uh, and, and things that, that are happening. So again, one of the things that's happening during this pilot um, for Juneteenth, actually Friday, since there's so many things happening for Juneteenth, if you wanna come by between five and nine, we're gonna have a, an event. There'll be some performers out on the patio there and the gallery will be open from five to nine. Um, so, so this space is now activated and acting as an anchor here on the corner to um, activate this space and we're actively talking to the Grangers who own the fire station across the street and Elias who owns the building cross street about how we can continue to work together and and activate these spaces and so big other message here is paying artists. Um, we pay artists very well inside of um, that that are participating in this, including the performing artists, um, as you know, after restaurants artists were probably the people that were hardest hit by COVID. And so their cultural, people doing cultural work is such an important part of revitalizing downtowns and revitalizing cities. We have to honor those artists. We have to pay them. Artists get asked to do work for free all the time. And we feel like we need to honor that. Um, so we are trying to do that as an example with the corner gallery and every work that we did around the building as well. And lastly, um, but no less important is the capacity building work that we do. Um, and these are just a few of the examples. So one of our newest programs is called the Friends of the Jesse. So right now, um, as of Ju July 1st, actually, because we have some new happening, we'll have we're fully leased. We'll have 22 Jacksonville-based nonprofit organizations that are in the building. Um, and we offer regular programming for them and the community at large, but we wanted to figure out how could we impact smaller grassroots nonprofits and, and diversify the space, create more density, create more opportunities for them to access the resource. So we developed a program called Friends of the Jesse. And so it's a super low free fee of $99, which actually all of that $99 can be used for um, below um, well below market rate um, meeting room rentals. They can co-work in our space. We redesigned all of our furniture in our common areas for co-working between 7 and 7, 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. Monday to Friday. Um, it gives them the opportunity to you know, rub shoulders with more established nonprofits, create opportunities for collaboration, um, give them places to meet with donors and, and their constituents that, you know, they'd want to meet with them and, and you know, have access to state-of-the-art meeting space and other um, things we have in our facility, like a full production studio, all at a very large discount. Um, we are running an advocacy series um, for nonprofits with the Nonprofit Center in Northeast Florida. Uh, we're very excited about this. Um, this programming, it started at the beginning of this year. I tend to partner with the Nonprofit Center in Northeast Florida around um, our capacity building work because they bring such um, great knowledge um, and you know such an important part of our community. 
and Sabine's organization is also assisting um, with that advocacy series. And moving the margins um, was really the impetus for the ongoing artwork. We spent the first quarter of this year doing community issue forums that were really popular around a variety of issues, including policy to protest, um, with, which focused very heavily on the people's budget, which some of you may or may not know about, but is a pretty interesting um, document uh, created, created to think differently about Jacksonville's budget. Um, and um, we've done something on race and education and um, in response to the school name issue that included many students that participated. Um, and we did something on philanthropy and um, women um, and throughout history and their participation. So again, we're trying to do um, things that will help build the capacity of um, nonprofits that aren't just tenants, but across the um, Northeast Florida region. We want to thank Mari and Mark for joining us at the Downtown Council, and we hope that you'll join us as well. Go to downtowncouncil.org to find more information, or as always, talk to a member of the Downtown Council. That's it for this week's Downtown Council podcast. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us at the next event.